Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Into the Breach, Part 3, Tale of Two Villages. Of all the landmarks which dot the Somme Valley, none have stood the test of time better than the main Roman highway. Straight as a die, it runs through the heart of the valley, serving as a lifeline for the towns that have sprung up along its axis. First constructed after Caesar's conquest of Gaul in 52 BC, it is a fitting testament to the legacy of that ancient empire. Starting in the regional capital of Amiens, it follows a northeasterly direction, hooking around Albert and continuing straight on to Bapalme. As in Roman times, it is still a commercial road, identified today as the D929 on modern roadmaps. If you venture down this road today, you will find yourself at the epicenter of the 1916 battlefield. As the road climbs out of Albert, reminders of the Great War are plentiful. Signposts line its shoulder, pointing you in the direction of museums, cemeteries, memorials, and other areas of significance. One of the first signs you'll encounter is the Bapalm Post Military Cemetery, which contains over 400 graves of the 103rd Tyneside Irish Brigade part of the British 34th Division, which attacked parallel to the main road on July 1, 1916. The Bapalm Cemetery marks the beginning of what was the British-held sector on the first day of the Somme. If you continue one kilometer up the road, you'll see a blue signpost, informing you that you have reached the extent of the British line and are now entering no man's land. From here, the road climbs a small hill before dipping into a large valley. From the valley, you'll spot two villages, one on the left, just beyond the main road, and the other astride it. The village on the left is Oviers, and the one on the right is La Boiselle. In 1916, these villages marked the end of no man's land, and the beginning of the German front line. The area along the main road is a humble, undulating countryside of fields, dotted with tiny distant woods, a pleasant, open chalk downland devoid of cover. There are no hedgerows like in Normandy, nor thick forests like Verdun. Far from the bustle of Amiens, it is eternally quiet, as if in continual remembrance of the horrific events a century earlier. Each summer, the war returns in some small way. Battlefield tourists flock to the area, turning the Somme into an open-air museum and living memorial. In Albert, a large market at Town Hall Square draws thousands of hungry patrons providing a temporary population boom not seen since 1916. Out in the country, a natural phenomenon is also taking place, a phenomenon that predates the Great War, but which will continue long after its legacy is faded. As summer approaches, the poppies return, bathing the green fields in a reddish hue. For the locals, it is a reminder of a darker time, and for the thousands of unclaimed dead who sleep beneath the soil, a somber request to the living that they not be forgotten. There they remain, waiting patiently to join their brothers-in-arms in one of dozens of nearby military cemeteries. For the citizens of Albert, Tipval, Oviers, and La Boiselle, the poppy's return is a reminder that the psalm is stained red, and will be for years to come. In this next installment of our five-part examination of July the 1st, 1916, we are at the epicenter of the British advance. The Roman road runs straight through this access, 
giving us an easy geographical reference point. On the first day of the Somme, this sector was held by the British Third Corps, whose two divisions, the 8th and 34th Divisions, attacked on either side of the main road, 8th Division towards Ovieres on the northern side, and the 34th towards La Boiselle to the south. I've attached a diagram of the battlefield to the website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. I'll be referring to it a few times throughout the episode, so be sure to keep it handy. Since Ovieres and La Boiselle formed the center of the British advance on July the 1st, it was here that Hagen Rawlinson attached a great amount of hope. Securing the cordon was crucial in the overall plan to break through towards Bapalm. In theory, a British success along the main road would be a damaging blow to Germany's defenses. Working in conjunction with 10th Corps' attack on Tiepval, which we covered in episode 52 part 1, the British were poised to open up the higher ground along the tiepval Posier ridgeline, which was the backbone of Germany's frontline defense. It was anticipated that by the end of July the 1st, 3rd Corps would have advanced 2,500 meters, overrun Ovieres and La Boiselle, and established a foothold along the Posier Ridge, an extensive high ground which ran behind Ovieres and La Boiselle. As a testament to High Command's optimism, Haig attached several cavalry divisions, part of Herbert Goh's reserve army, to exploit the inevitable breach. Once a gap had been opened, the cavalry would push through and begin rolling up the German flanks. With the cavalry widening the gap, 4th Army would then divert all resources to this sector, turning the Albert-Bapalm Road into the main axis of advance. Unfortunately, this optimism was horribly misplaced. After July the 1st, the main British effort would shift to this axis, so as we progress further into the campaign, we'll become quite familiar with the area. However, it would not be as smooth as Hag or Rawlinson expected. Instead of a one-shot grab at Posier, the British would be forced to launch costly and incremental advances, slowly creeping towards Bapalm throughout the autumn and winter. It was the terrible events of July the 1st which scuttled British plans setting the tone for the remainder of the campaign. On July the 1st, 3rd Corps was commanded by Lieutenant General William Pulteney, a 55-year-old maverick who emerged as the longest-serving Corps commander on the Western Front. Despite this hard-earned title, Pulteney was not the most well-regarded man in the Army, in so far that he may have been the main source of inspiration for Blackadder's nemesis, General Melchett. Certainly, Pulteney fits the archetype of the donkey general. Stiff, aristocratic, and seemingly disinterested in the facets of war, those who served with him have not left glowing reviews. His own chief of staff once described him as the most completely ignorant general I served during the war. His assigned nickname, Putty, has not helped his historical standing. We don't know a whole lot about Pulteney outside of a few professional credentials. We know that he was born in Ashley, Northamptonshire, and received his first commission in 1878. Official portraits reveal a man of quiet stubbornness. He was a tall man with a somewhat hardened figure, with hooded eyes and the bushy mustache that seemed to be standard issue for so many British generals. Still, his face wore the stress of command. He seems to have aged a decade between 1914 and 1918, leaving his cheeks lacerated with permanent wrinkles. Pulteney left no memoir or diary, which perhaps made him a convenient scalp for later critics. What has survived are several items of personal correspondence, 
which do not cast him in a positive light. The man had no filter, and despite his position as a corps commander, he felt nothing was off-limits. He wrote about everything, from women, gossip, and gardening. He had several aristocratic confidants, many of whom were well-connected women. Himself a bachelor, his letters were full of innuendo. His favorite correspondent seems to have been Mrs. Edith Londonderry, the colonel-in-chief of the Women's Volunteer Reserve. In one letter to Miss Londonderry, Pulteney wrote about a recent mole infestation that had plagued his garden. Boasting that he had killed three moles that morning, he told Miss Londonderry that he had bested the rodents because he knew, quote, the habits of those returning from other people's beds in the dawn, end quote. This was not his most graphic one either. In an earlier letter to Miss Londonderry, dated June the 22nd, 1916, just days before the big push, he complained about a recent cold snap and the difficulties of staying warm. He asked if he should revert to his winter underwear, adding that it was better to keep those parts cold so they could fully appreciate the warmth of other parts when they got into them. So yes, Pulteney definitely had a pervy side to him, and these letters certainly do not reflect well on him in a modern context. For the time, however, his behavior was little out of the ordinary. Aristocratic men and women often shared scandalous letters, usually behind the backs of their wives and husbands. In a society where both sexes were to observe formality and politeness at all times, these letters were often their only form of release. Critics of British generalship will be the first to use these letters as proof of Pulteney's incompetence, while overlooking the high-profile affairs of more senior officials, including the Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and the GOAT David Lloyd George. However, we need to be careful not to excuse Pulteney entirely. He was not a politician. He was a corps commander directly responsible for the lives of 18,000 men. And what unfolded in his sector on that sunny morning of July the 1st does make you wonder whether his head was someplace else. Of the 18,000 men sent in, 11,000 would be dead or wounded by nightfall. None of his objectives were met, and his two divisions would become the worst hit of all 16 British divisions used on July the 1st. But was Pulteney as incompetent as his critics would have us believe? It actually doesn't appear so. As Anthony Leask writes, he had a firmer grasp on battlefield realities than you might think. Not only was he the longest-serving corps commander of the First World War, from August 5, 1914 to February 19, 1918, he felt Hag and Rawlinson were badly misguided in their optimism, and had no trouble in calling them out on it. For one, he argued that Third Corps' attack should be delayed until Tenth Corps had secured Teepval. He based this assessment on the terrain before him, which we'll get into a bit later. Secondly, he was openly skeptical about the whole plan. He knew the German defenses were deep enough to protect them from the shelling, and perhaps his experience with the garden moles taught him something of countering a threat that sheltered underground. For Pulteney, the whole thing had a bad sting to it, and he felt that all the optimism surrounding the big push was just wishful thinking. But if Pulteney understood the dangers, his planning for Third Corps' operation did not reflect his concerns. Overall, it was a pretty simple operation. If you look at the map, you'll see how the Third Corps was arrayed, with 8th Division's brigades north of the Baphome Road, and 34th Division on the south. The 103rd Brigade, 
consisting of the Tyneside Irish, were held in reserve. As a side note, there was one other division that day, the 19th Division which was held in reserve. But the 19th played no part in the July 1st attack, so we won't be factoring it into our discussion here. For the involved divisions, however, the 8th and 34th, their objectives were pretty straightforward. 34th Division, commanded by Major General E.C. Nguvu Williams, was to launch a four-pronged attack on La Boiselle and Sausage Valley, while 8th Division attacked Ovieres through the confines of Mash and Nab Valleys, assisted by the 102nd Brigade, which was positioned astride the main road. The general plan was to flank around La Boiselle, nip off the outskirts, and then drive on to Contomaison and Posiere. This all sounded well and good, but the terrain offered little in the way of easy access. No Man's Land was four to 800 meters wide along the main road, which the British would have to traverse by navigating through the flanking valleys. The Germans, of course, had dug themselves along the spurs of these valleys, making any approach extremely hazardous. To appreciate the immense difficulty of this task, we need to have a clear mental picture of the geography. The Bapalm Road rises like a spine throughout the country, with sloping valleys on each side. North of the road are two valleys, which the British had codenamed Nab and Mash. South of the road is a third valley, the smaller but more pronounced Sausage Valley. If you are wondering where the British came up with these names, just think Sausage and Mash, one of the finest culinary combinations in recorded history. The Germans had staked their positions along two main spurs overlooking these valleys. The northern spur, known as Ovier Spur, was defended by the 180th Infantry Regiment, while the southern spur, Chape Spur, was held by the 110th and 111th Reserve Regiments. The Oviers and Chape Spurs stuck out into the British line like a pair of fangs, divided down the middle by Mash Valley. These elevated positions offered ample observation for the German sentries. From the crest of Ovier Spur, the Germans could see well past Albert and to the west, while on Chape Spur, overlooking Sausage Valley to the southeast, they enjoyed an unobstructed view all the way to the fortified village of Contomaison and beyond. Elevation was not the only issue facing the British attackers. The distance across no man's land was equally problematic. It was 800 meters across Mash Valley, while Sausage Valley ranged from 3 to 400 meters. From their positions, the Germans could hit the British with deadly enfilading fire, crisscrossing their machine guns as the British advanced along the valleys. Again, if you look at the map, No Man's Land was a considerable distance between Sausage and Mash Valleys. However, if you follow the front line in the direction of the main road, you'll see that the front line's bottlenecked just in front of La Boiselle. In this section, the two armies were separated by just 50 meters of No Man's Land. To the Germans, this spot was known as Shell Farm, and to the British, the Glory Hole. On July the 1st, 1916, the Glory Hole was one of the most rotten sections of the Western Front, a stretch of murdered nature which had been hotly contested since 1914. The ground was heavily cratered, and due to the close proximity of the armies, the men were on high alert all the time. The reason I bring this up is because the Glory Hole remains a controversial aspect of the Ovier's La Boiselle operation, 
one which many historians have pointed to and asked, what if? Pulteney had ordered that no attack should take place here, opting to have the main attack skirt around the sides. Critics argue that this shows Pulteney opted to expose his men in the open valleys, rather than send them on a quick jaunt across the glory hole, and see this as proof of his negligence. Keep in mind that no man's land was just 50 meters at the hole, instead of 4 to 800 meters elsewhere. I wanted to address this now so we don't get bogged down in it later. Pulteney's decision to bypass the glory hole was a sensible one, and there are two key reasons for it. One, due to the high activity of the glory hole, it would have been exceedingly dangerous, as both armies were far too alert. The British had taken over from the French in late 1915, and the Allied trenches were flooded and rotten. They were in no condition to accommodate a large contingent of troops, and efforts to renovate them would have been impossible given the close proximity of the armies. The second reason was that neither army could rely on the ground beneath their feet. In few places on the Western Front were mines more prevalent than at the Glory Hole. Here, the Allied and German armies engaged in subterranean warfare, perfecting the art before its proliferation in 1917. It was a day-to-day -day struggle to outdig and outmine your opponent. Special mining units on both sides raged a constant battle, digging tunnels and shafts towards enemy lines in the hope of burying beneath them, setting an explosive charge, and destroying fortified positions from below. Since early 1915, more than a dozen mines were detonated in this small area, which resulted in few permanent trenches or fortifications. Meters beneath the flayed earth lay a labyrinth of underground tunnels, some no more than a couple meters in diameter. Digging these tunnels required men of iron nerves, most of whom had been miners before the war. Working in dark, claustrophobic conditions, each tap of a shovel was magnified tenfold in the tunnels. They not only had to worry about enemy countermining, but fragile earth made less stable by the constant pounding of high explosive. Even in the chalk soil of the Somme, cave-ins were not uncommon. To defend against mining operations, officers had two choices. Either hand the position over to the enemy, or stick it out and hope that the next mine did not go off under your cot. At the glory hole, it was a life of terror and uncertainty. Both sides regularly set traps and attempted to blow charges to collapse the enemy's tunnels, thus crushing or entombing the enemy miners alive. Men above spent their days listening to the telltale sounds of pickaxes and shovels. While countermining gave some degree of comfort, it also brought a mental torture which frayed nerves. Sometimes the taps from below were SOS signals from the tunnelers who had been buried alive under tons of mud and debris. Like snipers, miners were despised, but few wished a slow, suffocating death in pitch darkness on even their own worst enemy. Pulteney and 34th Division Commanding Officer Inguville Williams had a plan. Although the glory hole was not to be assaulted, the pre-existing tunnels were to have an important role. Along the crests of Chape Spur, the Germans had placed two formidable strongholds, the Wysap and Lochnagar Redoubts. Wysap Redoubt defended the area of Mash Valley, while Lochnagar overlooked Sausage Valley. Like at Beaumont Hamel, the British planned to remove these cornerstones by blowing them up from below. Special tunneling units had spent months burying beneath them, their two-pronged tunnels beginning from the glory hole and snaking their way to 15 meters below the German positions. 
At YSAP, 18,000 kilograms of aminol were planted along a single-access tunnel, the final chamber being 15 meters below the German floor. YSAP mine was of similar size to Hawthorne, which was blown at Beaumont Hamel. However, these freakish concoctions were dwarfed by the size of Lochnagar. Lochnagar mine was the real monstrosity. Two separate charges were primed, which totaled 27,200 kilograms of explosives, planted 16 meters below the redoubt. Both YSAP and Lochnagar were what engineers called overcharged mines, meaning they had more explosives than what was deemed necessary. It was expected that overcharged detonations would leave a lip around the crater, elevating the earth by several feet, which would disrupt the line of fire of German machine guns. Both these mines would be detonated at 7.28 a.m., two minutes before zero. With the Germans stunned by these detonations, Pulteney and Ingouville Williams expected it would give attacking infantry enough time to traverse the valleys and begin pressing towards the German rear. What actually played out was something far different. Like at Gumcor, Serre, and Beaumont Hamel, the awful pattern repeated itself. The week-long shelling had no effect on the integrity of the German positions. Safe in their reinforced shelters, the Germans listened to the roars above with bated anticipation. Sentries stood at the threshold of their dugouts, ears straining for the first hint of slackening fire. At La Boiselle, the German 110th and 111th Reserve Regiments had a nasty surprise in store. The incessant shelling aside, they had been the first to piece together British intentions. Recent countermining operations had discovered the tunnels leading to the YSAP chamber. Instead of dismantling the bomb, thereby warning the British that it had been discovered, the Germans evacuated the redoubt and dispersed its garrison throughout the spur defense line. Therefore, when YSAP mine was detonated, it would have none of its designed effects. The Germans also benefited from a timely piece of intel. In the hours preceding the British attack, German listening posts near La Boiselle intercepted an important message. It originated from the British 4th Army commander, Henry Rawlinson, who was wishing his men good luck in the coming endeavor. Now, we already covered this in episode 52, part 1, so we won't go back into it again. But once the message was decoded and translated, it told the Germans all they needed to know. At 7.28 a.m., as British shells continued to pound the German lines with a murderous drum fire, mining officers pushed their plungers and detonated the Lochnagar and Wysap mines. The explosions were tremendous. They tore off a cornerstone of the German spurs and left a gaping wound in the side of the hill. The Lochnagar redoubt was heavily damaged. Debris from the explosion buried 182 meters of the German front line, and the redoubt's occupants stood no chance. Some were vaporized, hurled into the air, crushed, or were die slowly trapped 10 meters beneath the rubble. The earthly column rose 1,220 meters into the air. Witnesses to the explosion compared the descending chalk to a heavy snowfall. Once it settled, the Lochnagar crater measured 80 meters across and 22 meters deep. It was the largest man-made explosion in history, not to be surpassed until the atomic bomb. With the smoke above Lochnagar still swirling, battalion officers of the 8th and 34th Divisions blew their whistles. Men gripped the ladders and began climbing from their trenches. Ingouville Williams 
had committed the whole 34th Division to the attack. All battalions were due in the first wave, divided into four columns three battalions deep. None were held in reserve. His hope was to overwhelm and rupture the German line. Instead, the scale of the British effort to take La Boiselle and Ovieres was less matched by the size of the disaster and their failure to do so. Before they had crossed their own wire, wild counterfire slammed against the British formations. Machine guns hidden along the spur line crackled to life, cutting down the first waves on the edge of their own parapet. Those crawling up the ladder were sent tumbling down as the dead collapsed back into the trench. German rockets sped into the blue sky, signaling to their artillery. A firestorm of shrapnel and high-explosive shells began to fall on no man's land, tearing through the air and bursting into the advancing British. Whole sections fell, and their rear formations, moving in close order, quickly scattered. Across the British front, the attack was crumbling. Astride the albert Bapaume Road, 8th and 34th Divisions were being sprayed with a hurricane of defensive fire. Entire companies were ripped to shreds, while those who survived the initial maelstrom sought refuge where they could. Communication shattered. Over the twisting, grinding, and tearing, no orders could be heard. Junior officers attempted to rally their men, but were shot to pieces as soon as they exposed themselves. Few men dared to move. But where German counterfire was less concentrated, bands of survivors ran the gauntlet and broke into the German positions. Grenades were tossed over the parapet, which silenced the German gunners. Helped by a little bit of luck, there were enough gaps in the wire to allow a breach. With heads tucked to their shoulders, the British navigated the wire and rolled into the German positions. They were now in a fight for their lives. So let us now descend from this general viewpoint and focus more narrowly on events north and south of the road. We'll start with 8th Division, which had attacked with three brigades against Ovier Spur. On July the 1st, 8th Division was commanded by Major General Sir Havelock Hudson, a British Indian Army officer who took command of 8th Division at the end of July 1915. He had three brigades under his command, which you'll see on the map were the 70th, 25th, and 23rd. Hudson was of the same mind as Pulteney. He doubted the overall chances of the offensive and feared that his men would be pinned down by flanking fire coming from the Wysap Redoubt and Ovier Spur. Critical to 8th Division's progress was the success of 10th Corps' attack on Teepval, namely the 32nd Division's assault on the Leipzig Redoubt, which you'll recall from Part 1. The difficulty of Hudson's task lay in this problem. The German defenses had a long reach, meaning they could overlap one another and bleed into another sector. The Leipzig Redoubt, although built to defend Tiepval, could also be used to defend the corridors of the albert bapaume Road. What often gets overlooked in discussions about the Somme battles is the close proximity of the German defenses in the northern sector. Today, it is less than an hour's walk from Ovieres to Tiepval, and that is if you stick to the main roads and avoid shortcuts. So while it's easy to isolate the events and look at each individual sector, we need to be careful not to think of them as their own contained battles. To give you a better idea, it takes less than 20 minutes to drive from Ovieres to Serre, and less than 15 from Newfoundland Park to Loch Nagar Crater. It was due to this confinement that the British had difficulties maintaining their momentum. 
it wasn't that the Germans' front line was impregnable. It was the larger defenses behind the front which wrecked havoc on British infantry. Until these redoubts were taken, the success of the offensive was far from certain. Like we saw at Gumcorps, what happened in one sector had a direct influence on the others, which is a big reason why British attempts were ultimately ineffective. 8th Division attacked with three brigades abreast. 70th Brigade was to attack north of Ovieres through Nab Valley, while the 25th and 23rd Brigades attacked in the south through the valleys of Mash and Wysap. The only direct assault on Ovieres would be carried out by the 25th Brigade. The 70th and 23rd would approach through the valleys on opposite sides. In his five-volume history of the Great War, Winston Churchill dedicates a large portion of his chapter on the Somme to 8th Division's assault. Churchill, like many others who wrote post-war, adopted an anti-Hague stance in his writing. He was highly critical of where the battle was fought, the lack of surprise, and chosen battlefield tactics. It should be noted that Churchill offered no realistic alternatives, and was writing from a strong position of bias. Like Lloyd George, Churchill was a committed Easterner, meaning he felt Britain's strength lay in her economic and naval muscle. He wished to see the main effort diverted from France and committed elsewhere, namely to the Balkans or to Italy. With his Dardanelles experiment in ruins, Churchill had sought atonement by serving on the Western Front, and returned to politics as a backbencher in March of 1916. With Haig now at the helm of the BEF, and William Robertson as chief of the Imperial General Staff, Churchill saw the war take a decisive turn. Britain was now fully committed to fighting on the Western Front, and Churchill, having served in that theatre, knew what lay in store. Churchill also had an axe to grind with Haig. Haig's predecessor, Sir John French, had promised Churchill the command of a brigade. But with Haig's arrival as top soldier, this decision was promptly vetoed. Whether Churchill deserved the brigade remains up for debate, but this early rift between Haig and Churchill did not set the relationship off to a good start. Still, Churchill's account of 8th Division is an interesting read. What makes it particularly profound is his reliance on German accounts. In fact, his description of the battle comes through the eyes of a single German witness. The eyewitness, 2nd Lieutenant Mathaus Gerster of Infantry Regiment 119, ends up describing the British assault as an amazing spectacle of unexampled gallantry, courage, and bulldog determination. The use of bulldog being Churchill's rough translation. 8th Division's three brigades set off at 7.30am. There was no smoke to cover their approach due to a light wind which dispersed it. Forward battalions had to cross 800 meters of no man's land. This considerable distance gave the Germans ample time to haul up their machine guns and establish a firing line. Once the British got within range, they were hit with a wall of machine gun and rifle fire. On the northern flank of the attack, the 70th Brigade had some success. With the Leipzig Redoubt occupied by 10th Corps' attack, battalions of the 8th Yorks and 8th Lancashires had gotten across no man's land into the first three lines of German trenches. Unfortunately, enfilading fire from Ovieres and the Nordwerk, a German stronghold north of Ovieres, caused considerable casualties among the attacking formations. 
Once in the German network, the survivors formed into mixed units and began fighting their way forward, capturing several dugouts before being hit by German counterfire. The support battalions, the 9th Yorks and Lancashires, already en route across no man's land, were cut down before they could make a contribution. By 8 a.m., the wheels came flying off. 70th Brigade was taking fire from three directions, Oviers, the Nordwerk, and the southern trenches of the Leipzig Redoubt, which, having contained 10th Corps' attack, had swiveled their defenses southward. With the German triumvirate of Oviers, Nordwerk, and Leipzig Redoubts in full operation, No Man's Land was soon a sea of casualties. British reserves attempting to reach the marooned Yorks and Lanks were mown down in the face of heavy counterfire. 70th Brigade had been blunted, which sparked a chain reaction to the units in the south. It was expected that the 25th Brigade was to have the easiest of 8th Division's targets. Their ultimate objective was to make a direct attack on Oviers. It was assumed that their attacks would be out of sight of the German defenders on the spur. However, with the evacuation of the Weissap Redoubt, everything changed. With a new firing line established along the northern edge of the salient, the 25th Battalions headed straight into the Maw of the Beast. Terrible counterfire greeted them. It took forward parties 20 minutes just to get across No Man's Land. They advanced in short bursts, from shell hole to shell hole, using embankments and sunken roads to conceal their movement. At 7.50am, small parties of the 2nd Lincolns reached the German front line then pressed on towards the second trench. As they did, they were compelled to withdraw in the face of counterattacks from German mortar parties. At Ovier's that day was Lieutenant Colonel Reginald Bastard, Battalion CEO of the 2nd Lincolns. Bastard had gone in with the opening wave, weaving his men through the lunar landscape of No Man's Land and into the German trenches. There, they were immediately hit by enfilading fire from the village. Bastard was now commanding the remnants of three battalions, and not knowing when reinforcements would arrive, was determined to press the attack forward. He took control of the situation. Calmly and professionally, he organized his men to block the trenches with barbed wire and to search nearby dugouts for weapons and hand grenades. For the next 90 minutes, this small group would hold on to their splinter of occupied trench, only to be driven off when their supplies ran low. Bastard knew they could not hold on forever, so with their ammo depleting, Bastard ordered his men to retreat outside the German wire, where he then proceeded to run back to the British trenches to find out what the situation was. For those of you who have seen Band of Brothers, this is very similar to Spears' marathon across Foy in Episode 7. As Bastard traversed No Man's Land for the second time in as many hours, it did not take long for him to piece together what had happened he came across the remains of his support waves, hundreds of dead and dying men, howling in agony as he passed. In the chaos of battle, running towards your own line can be just as dangerous as running towards the enemies. But luckily for Bastard, he was not shot by an overly anxious sentry. As soon as Bastard arrived back at the front, he began collecting all the stragglers from the attacking battalions and ordered them to get up and reinforce the group he left in front of the German wire. Incredibly, Bastard did this not once, not twice, but four times that morning, meaning he had somehow crossed no man's land eight times without once getting hit, and in the process saved the lives of dozens of wounded British soldiers. 
It is a miraculous story, one which is almost unbelievable given the odds. But however brave Bastard was, his incredible effort soon crashed before him. On his fourth trip across, he scrounged together one final group and ordered them across. This party was immediately savaged by accurate rifle and machine gun fire as soon as they left the British line. This final blow was too much for Bastard, who collapsed from exhaustion. Quite fortunately, Bastard survived the war, and was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for Bravery. However, Bastard's party, the marooned group outside the German wire, was subsequently wiped out. 8th Division's day drew to a close at 10 o'clock that morning. The division's right-hand brigade, the 25th, was annihilated almost to a man. This brigade had advanced close to the shoulder of the Albert Bapam Road, meaning they were in full view of the German defenders on the northern side of the salient. Here, the land was utterly devoid of cover, except for craters and weed-infested corn. It was expected that the brigade would be able to gain the Albert Bapam Road, and then push on to Poissier. Instead, events played out as they had elsewhere. The three attack battalions, the 2nd Middlesex, 2nd Devons, and 2nd West Yorks, lost over 60% of their men before they reached the German wire. So complete was the devastation that further advances were subsequently cancelled. 8th Division achieved none of its objectives, but in the process suffered the third most casualties of any division on July the 1st. They began with a strength of 8,500 bayonets, and in just two and a half hours, 5,274 men were killed, wounded, or missing. Casualties among the officer corps were even higher. Out of 300 frontline officers, only 82 remained. Seven out of nine battalion commanding officers had also been killed. On the other hand, German losses were negligible. The 180th Reserve Regiment had lost 78 killed and 124 wounded throughout the week-long shelling. In the subsequent Battle of Ovieres, their total loss mounted to just 202 killed, wounded, or missing. Combined, 1,800 Germans had defended against 8,500 British with a total loss of just 404. So now that we've covered 8th Division, we'll swing south and end off today with the 34th Division, which attacked the German line south of the main road. 34th Division, commanded by Edward Charles Nguvu Williams, anchored the main access of the British position. Its attack battalions, which were spread among two brigades, occupied a stretch of frontage north of the Bapalm Road, to the extreme end of the Sausage Valley salient. In reserve was the 103rd Tyneside Irish Brigade, which remained in the reserve trenches of the Terra Usna Hills, which were 1,500 metres behind the front line. Today, the Terra Usna line is marked by the Bapalm Post Military Cemetery. The assault made by the 34th Division on La Boiselle has attained a terrible infamy within the chronicles of the British Army, and it was all due to a tactical decision by Commanding Officer Ingouville Williams. To ensure full weight of attack, Ingouville Williams employed all of his division's 12 battalions in the initial assault. They would attack in four columns, each column three battalions in depth, with a frontage of 400 meters. The plan was to have the leading brigades take the first objective, followed by the support battalions moving past and securing the second. 
Once complete, the 103rd Tyneside Irish would move into action, leapfrogging the previous battalions and wheeling towards Contalmaison and Pozier. It was expected that Lochnagar Crater would assist in their advance through Sausage Valley. Instead, Lochnagar Crater became a refuge from the maelstrom which greeted them. Those who made it to Lochnagar found they could go no further. Their only hope was to sit tight and wait to retreat under the cover of nightfall. The 102nd Tyneside Scottish, astride the main road, began the attack, its battalions divided into two columns. No man's land in the area of Wysap was 700 meters wide, and success in crossing it depended entirely on the opening bombardment. Seeing as the German defenders had proven themselves resilient, this did not bode well for British prospects. In any event, the attack was catastrophic and the terrible concentration of killing which took place along the main road has become notorious. Drive down the Albert Bopon Road today, and you are at the heart of the battlefield. The tranquil valleys on opposite sides were death traps on the Somme. Thousands of dead remain in the fields today, unmoved since 1916. The week-long shelling had obliterated the village, and the unearthly white wreckages of Wysap and Lochnagar punctuated the scene of devastation. Although the British continued to pound La Boiselle with mortars for 12 minutes after zero hour, it was not enough to keep the Germans underground. Emerging from their pits and cellars, they established a firing line and awaited the attack. The 102nd Tyneside Scottish Brigade was hit as soon as they went over the top. Each company was played over by its piper, who continued to play until either killed or wounded. The Tyneside Scots were instantly shot to pieces no man got closer than 200 meters to the German trench. Elsewhere, the 101st Brigade, attacking on opposite sides of Lochnagar Crater, ran into further problems. Moving north of the crater were the 16th and 15th Royal Scots, while the 10th Lincolns and 11th Suffolks moved through Sausage Valley. The Lincolns and Suffolks were collectively known as the Grimsby Chums, so I'll be referring to these two units as such heading forward. At first glance, Lochnagar mines seemed to have served its purpose. With the redoubt in ruins, the British occupied the crater and used the momentary lapse to occupy the first German position. From there, however, things began to fall apart. The following disaster can be attributed to the naive and erroneous planning of Inguville Williams. He expected the attack to go swimmingly, but overlooked a pair of tactical realities. To minimize the chance of casualties from falling debris, Inguville Williams ordered the Grimsby chums to delay their assault for three minutes, meaning they would go over the top at 7.33 and not 7.30. Unfortunately, this three-minute delay had not been factored into the Royal Scots, who would be going in with the rest of 4th Army at 7.30. Furthermore, Inguville Williams had overplayed the significance of Lochnagar Crater, while the lip of the crater provided cover for the first wave, he failed to consider the communication problems that would face the two columns as they advanced around it. The Royal Scots, north of the crater, faced an elevated entrance leading to the Chape Spur, and thus, as they advanced upwards, and the Grimsby chums moved down in the valley, the distance between the two formations grew. Although the crater was 80 meters across, in reality, the two columns would be 200 meters apart. The lip of the crater, designed to shield them from German machine gunners, would end up obstructing the views of the other. 
thus the chums would not be able to see the Scots, and vice versa. For the inexperienced BEF, these difficulties would prove insurmountable. The detonation of Lochnagar mine stunned the German defenders. However, the delay in launching the Grimsby chums meant the Germans had ample time to man their positions. Some British formations were able to reach Lochnagar crater, but from there on were under fire from German machine guns on the spurs. Small numbers of Grimsby men managed to reach the ruins of the redoubt, while tiny groups of Suffolk soldiers crossed the lowest confines of Sausage Valley and grabbed hold of the first German trench. As they pushed deeper in, the British were leaving a trail of dead. German machine guns atop the western spurs had turned Sausage Valley into a terrible killing ground. Moving across 600 meters of exposed ground, the Lincolns and Suffolks were mown down in bunches. The German gunners cleaved their way through the British formations. Most of the casualties were dismembered below the knees as the arc of fire swept across the battlefield. Like a scythe to a bushel of wheat, as one British survivor later recollected. Casualties were tremendous. A dozen men from the 11th Suffolks were burned to death by flamethrowers as they attempted to breach the German parapet. The 101st and 102nd Brigades were fragmented. The terrible weight of machine gun fire coming from the upper reaches of Sausage Valley and the Lavazal salient caused havoc among the advancing platoons. The 101st Brigade's left column, consisting of the 15th and 16th Royal Scots, marched straight into the unrelenting hail of bullets. With their flank being chewed to bits, they lost all coordination and veered southeast, dipping below Conto Maison and spilling into 15th Corps' sphere of operations. For a brief moment, the confused Scots intermingled with the 21st Division's drive on Freikorps. Knowing they had withered the British advance, the Germans swiveled their machine guns northeast, catching the right column of the 101st Brigade in a terrible crossfire. Meanwhile, a thousand meters behind the British front line was the 103rd Tyneside Irish Brigade, consisting of the 24th, 25th, 26th, and 27th Battalions, part of the Northumberland Fusiliers. The 103rd Brigade was an all-volunteer force, comprised mainly of the Irish diaspora living in Britain. Based on Ingovu Williams's plans to launch all battalions at once, the 103rd Brigade was technically the support brigade, charged with pushing past La Boiselle and opening a gap between the 101st and 102nd. In reality, all of 34th Divisions were launched at once, but to conserve unity, the 103rd Brigade was placed nearly a full kilometer behind the 101st and 102nd. What happened to the 103rd Tyneside Irish has become a symbol of the futility and terrible bloodletting of July 1st, 1916. The brigade started from their reserve trenches of the Terra Usna line, a low ridge a full kilometer behind the British front line. Leaving their positions at 7.30am, 3,000 men advanced at a walking pace. From the Terra Usna line, they advanced over ground with a fold, which then dipped into the Avacoa Valley. If you go to the website, you'll see a grainy black and white photograph just below the map. It depicts a support company belonging to one of the Tyneside Irish battalions advancing over the fold of Terra Hill. Within seconds, most of the men you see there would become casualties as they cleared the ridge and descended into the valley. The men of the Tyneside Irish must have known they were advancing to their death. The fold leading from Terra Hill to the Avacoa blocked the battlefield from view. 
They may not have seen the carnage on the other side, but they could definitely hear it. A terrible black smoke clung to the horizon, and the thunder of German artillery sent geysers of earth which cleared the crest of the hill. The demonic laughter of enemy machine guns could also be heard, clamoring back and forth non-stop, their silence punctuated by the screams of the wounded and the crash of artillery. As soon as this great mass of men peeked along the ridge, the defenders reacted. New belts were fed into their chambers as the gunners swiveled towards this new threat. For the Germans, the situation was equally desperate, and the appearance of this enemy horde must have seemed impossible. Exhausted and deafened from the roars of battle, they had no choice but to persevere. Taking aim, their machine guns clapped to life once again. One gun commander estimated he had fired no fewer than 20,000 rounds that morning, 33 minutes of continuous, non-stop firing. The Tyneside Irish commanding officer, Brigadier General N.J.G. Cameron, was killed 20 minutes into battle, and wave after wave were cut down in the storm of enemy shellfire. German machine guns steamed as belt after belt was fired into this living target. In wide arcs, they swept across the British line. The first line appeared to continue without end to the right and left. It was quickly followed by the second, then a third, and fourth. All along the line, the British could be seen throwing their arms into the air and collapsing never to move again. Badly wounded rolled about in their agony, reaching for their comrades who marched past them. The Tyneside Irish were under orders. There was no time to assist the casualties, and the march continued to the beat of a single big drum. Twenty minutes later, the remaining Irish reached their own front line, but there was no time to stop. Having crossed 1,000 meters of open ground, they can now begin their 500-meter voyage across no man's land. Bloodied and spent, they again stepped back into the hellfire. By this point, there was hardly a brigade left. The Tyneside Irish were down to less than 50 effectives. But somehow, these men were about to make the most incredible, almost inexplicable advances of any British unit on July the 1st. This small group, commanded by an unknown junior officer of the 24th Northumberland Fusiliers, would make a mad dash into the German trenches. Along with a handful of survivors from the 27th Battalion, this group would fight their way into the German rear, completely on their own. It is difficult to piece together what happened next. This platoon of 30 or so men would be wiped out by the end of the day, leaving no survivors or witness testimonies. Most of the information we do have come from German accounts, which were written in the thrall of victory, meaning certain details would be overlooked. It is safe to assume, however, that the initial gains of this indomitable party can be credited to catching the Germans off their guard, and using speed to bypass an enemy who never expected to see British troops so deep within their own network. It is also within the realm of possibility that the surviving Irish opted to avoid direct confrontation, saving their energy and ammunition for when they really needed it. Whatever the Tynesides did to survive seems to have initially worked. These 30 or so nameless souls penetrated as far as 700 meters into the German system, already having covered 2,200 meters since advancing from the Terra Usna line. We know the extent of their advance because the village of Contalmaison served as the headquarters of the German 183rd Infantry Division, 
and it was at Conte Maison, where all traces of the men were lost. As soon as they encountered fire from the village, they must have known their time was up. Those who survived the firefight tried to flee, but they had left it too late. German reserves were coalescing, and their escape route was cut off. Based on the fact that no survivors were counted, it shows that the Irish fought to the end, isolated in some corner of a foreign field. By nightfall, the assault on Ovieres in La Boiselle lay in ruins. The mash, sausage, and avocoa valleys were filled with corpses, and the dead lay strewn about in heaps. The fighting then took a different turn. Medical staff fought against the clock to clear the battlefield of wounded. Rescue efforts can only take place under the cover of darkness, making the process slow and immensely difficult. Snipers continued to operate, yet some brave stretcher bearers risked life and limb working in broad daylight. For the severely wounded, rescue would not come for days. It was only on the morning of July the 3rd when medical crews could begin extracting the wounded laying untended in no man's land. For many, it was already too late. But for others, the sight of a friendly face was nothing short of heavenly. The account of Dr. Jim Fidian of the 11th Suffolks recalls how the wounded seemed to converge on him, crawling and reaching in desperation. Quote, on first looking over the parapet, the whole ground seemed to be covered with dead men. As I stepped forward, I could see unwounded limbs were being waved in the air. Then, shockingly, mutilated forms began to crawl grotesquely and infinitely, slowly towards me. Never shall I forget that appalling sight. Quote. In all, Third Corps' attempt to take Ovieres and La Boiselle must be regarded as a complete catastrophe. Having achieved none of its objectives, its battalion suffered the highest percentage of losses of all British forces on July the 1st. 8th Division had taken 5,274 casualties, while the 34th took a staggering 6,380, making it the worst-hit division of all the 16 divisions used on that day. The 102nd Tyneside Scots Brigade suffered 2,438 men killed, wounded, or missing. Losses for the 103rd Irish were equal, with some 2,096. But since most of these men were killed behind their own front line, those numbers don't tell the full story. So thus far, the first day of the Somme has not been kind to the British, but I am happy to announce that their fortunes will begin to shift. Next week, we'll continue down 4th Army's front, following its trajectory until it bends eastward parallel to the Somme River. Here, we'll find two more places of interest, the villages of Freikorps and Mehmetz, which were the objectives of Henry Horn's 15th Corps. The British will have greater success in this sector, by the end of the day, Mehmet's would be in British hands, while the Germans would be forced to give up Freikorps the following morning. From here on out, we are entering the lesser-known areas of the Somme, but whose significance to the overall story of July the 1st are equally important. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. 
This week, I would like to thank our most recent donor, John Grant. Thank you very much for your donation, John. If you are enjoying the show and want to make a donation, you'll find the donate button up on the homepage. Donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been Part 3 of Episode 52 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.